more time. Good morning. All right. Hey, we do things a little bit different right now at Moran Park, and this is the first Sunday of the month, and so this is a, a teaching Sunday where we come and sit under the pro proclaimed Word of God. Uh, maybe we should call it Sermon Sunday or Proclamation Sunday. It's, it's the Sunday that's closest to what we traditionally associate with a traditional Sunday service. Because um, we also will do teaching on second Sunday and the third Sunday and the fourth Sunday as well. So we'll, we'll think about that. Um, elders, I want to just give an announcement, one announcement, and then I want to introduce Michael and pray for him as he comes to bring the Word of God to us this morning. The announcement is that the elders uh, of Moran Park uh, met with Britton and Michelle uh, Smith, our lead pastor, and his wife. And on Wednesday evening, we had a couple hours meeting uh, together with them, a very sweet meeting, a special meeting. Uh, they're just coming off a leave since they've been on a leave since July 1st and have come, come back uh, September 1st. And so um, they're away this weekend, but we will, I just wanted to make an announcement that we will be having an update from Britain uh, next week Sunday. So tune in, tune in for that. Michael is somebody that uh, is a familiar face to most of us. He's been around for a few years, I'd say. <laughs> um, and he's somebody in whom the elders have discerned the gift of teaching. And so he's coming to bring the word of God to us this morning. Let me pray for you, Michael, and I'll, I'll get out of your way here. Actually, would you raise your hands toward Michael this morning and pray for him with me? <clears throat> Father, we love you. Jesus, you are the crucified and resurrected Son, King of this earth and the Lord of the world. And we thank you so much that through the foolishness of proclamation, through the foolishness of preaching, it has pleased you to save your people. Yes, and it's not so much the vehicle, but the message, the content that you, of the, that you, through preaching, Christ, you are proclaimed as crucified for the forgiveness of sins, resurrected, and vindicated by God himself, your Father, seated at the right hand, having begun to rule, interceding for your people, and that you are proclaimed as coming and returning again someday to establish the new heavens and the new earth, to set the world to rights, to cleanse the world from evil, and to usher in an eternal age of peace and righteousness. Lord, to that end this morning, that your people may be saved, I pray for Michael. We pray for Michael. That you would now fill him with the Holy Spirit to proclaim your word. Be with him. Be with us. Protect this place from distractions, I pray. Demonic influence. Give us yielded hearts. Give us open ears to receive all that you have for us this morning. May we not be changed, but may we be changed and more in love with you than what we were when we walked in. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Chris. Good morning, fam. How are we doing? Doing well? All right. Um, I want to say welcome back to any Hope students in the room. I know you guys are uh, coming back from summer break, so welcome. Glad you're here. Um, 
Hey, I have the privilege of, of teaching you guys this morning. I, I don't take that lightly at all. I put a lot of prayer um, into this. And uh, over the course of our summer teaching series, we have focused on different aspects of God's character. Um, we've talked about God as shepherd. Uh, we've talked about um, a, a lot of characteristics and attributes of God. And there's great intention to this. Um, in, in a season, in a time uh, in this world and nation where things are very shifting and volatile, it seems right to us to look to the one who does not change with the shifting shadows. Amen? Okay, so that, that is the, the goal of the teaching series is we just want to look to the one who does not change in these times because he is our anchor. Um, we've explored a, a number of different aspects of God, as I mentioned, uh, and this morning I am going to be talking through the aspect of God as, uh, as a creator. Um, and so uh, I, I, I'm a teacher by trade, um, but I also work as a writer, uh, and I write creatively, but I also work with visual artists, uh, and a lot of what I do is try and decode them, which I, I kind of, it's a very complicated process, but I'm trying to help them um, bring forth the narrative, the message behind their work. And so the idea of God as creator is very central to what I do in the workplace. I'm always thinking about this attribute uh, or character of God simply because I work with a lot of artists and write myself. Um, but today what I want to suggest is that God as creator is not just relevant to people who are working uh, in the arts. Um, but it's relevant to all of us, and it's very, very central to who he is and to the gospel as well. Um, so what comes to mind when you think of God as creator? I want you to actually tell your neighbor. Go ahead. And Max, you can pull that first slide up. What comes to mind when you think of God as creator? All right, I want to hear some. Can somebody shout out a few? Uh, beauty. beauty, okay. Amen. Science, science. okay, yeah, there's, there's a poetry in science, right? Mountains, yes, always, always mountains. Um, yeah, if you're like me, a, a lot of times when I think of God as creator, uh, the natural world comes to mind. Uh, I am a sucker for stars. I've, I've spent a lot of time stargazing, probably to the chagrin of practical things I could be doing. Um, but go ahead and flip that next slide as well, Max. Um, I also worked as a backpacking guide for a, a while. I know I've talked about that a few times at Moran. Um, but I really saw God in, in this landscape, in the rugged topography uh, of Wyoming. Um, and uh, scripture shows that indeed God is revealed through the things that he has made. You can, you can flip that next slide. We see in Psalm 19... Um, that the heavens declare the glory of God. In other words, what he has physically made in the world reveals who he is as creator. Uh, this is echoed again in uh, Romans 1.20, right? It says that God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived in the, um, ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. Uh, I want you to focus especially on his eternal power. We're going to come back to that concept um, but the idea is that God reveals himself as a creator uh, through what he has physically created. And I think this is only the surface. This is only scratching the surface of the revelation of God as creator. 
We can understand God as creator by looking at the natural world, uh, and this is something theologians call natural revelation. The idea that what God has made does speak to the heart and stir the heart um, with, with at least wonder and awe and revelation. Um, but to limit God as creator only to what he's made is to miss out on the supernatural revelation of God. Because what separates our God from every God on planet earth is that he speaks. He says that clearly about himself and his word. Right? He, he doesn't, he's not a mute God. He's not a mute idol like what he compares himself, what, what he says he is not in scripture all throughout the prophets. He's a God who speaks. Um, he speaks through his spirit and he also speaks through his word. And so today I want to explore, I mean, I could toss, you know, I, I could toss some awesome pictures up here of, of some wilderness travels. Um, we could, you know, you could flip that next one. We'll just get that over with. Yeah, I'll just, that, that one's for fun there. <laughs> um, yes, that was on top of a mountain. All right, we could see God in these beautiful landscapes. I saw him hiking through the wildflowers. I saw him on top of mountains in all these beautiful places. But the reality is he is not limited uh, only to what he's physically made, right? There is a way that we can supernaturally uh, understand God as creator, and that is through his word and his spirit. Okay? Um, so let's dive in. When, when we think of God, we often think of him as, as Savior, as Lord, as King, uh, as Judge, and, and as I've talked about a few times up here, as Father. Um, and rightly so. Right? Uh, but I wonder how often the idea of him as creator goes overlooked. Uh, to evidence its centrality to the gospel, if you will, consider that the Bible opens with, with Genesis 1.1. Uh, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, implied in that statement is that he is king, that he is judge, that he's ruler. Uh, but on the surface, the, the, the first, you know, I, I just think about how important first impressions are in life. This is God's first impression in his word, right? He has a chance to reveal who he is. Um, and it's interesting to me that the attribute that is clearly highlighted of him is that he is a creator, um, and what I want to suggest is that this is very, very central uh, to who he is. Um, if we flip a slide, we, we, uh, the word that is used in um, that verse, Genesis 1-1, uh, is bara. Uh, try and say it. Bara. Bara. Okay. It's Hebrew, um, and we are going to talk a lot about it today. And um, what, this, what this word or, or verb does in Hebrew is it appears uh, kind of all throughout the Old Testament. If you, if you see it, God will use it. Um, it will be used a lot in Genesis. And God will talk about how he uh, made stars, how he made the hosts of heavens, the sun, the moon, uh, creatures, the, the heavens, and the earth. Um, this is a very central word to God as creator. There's a few times in the Bible, uh, I did a word search on this this week, and I noticed that there's a few times in the Bible that this word is used for people um, as to kind of create or, or make something. But like 90% of the time, the verb is attributed to God. Uh, he is the one who creates, and he's the only one who creates out of nothing. We can't do that. Um, so you'll notice that there, is, there are all these words for um, God as creator. Uh, and all of these verses, ladies and gentlemen, use the word bara, right? God created all these things. Okay? Um, but my fear, fam, is that we have limited God's creativity to the opening hours of Genesis. Uh, my fear is that we said God created the world, um, and then he stopped creating. 
Um, and I believe that to really understand God as creator, to understand this attribute, is not just to look at natural revelation. Um, but I believe that it is to understand that God is still creating today. That he cannot, uh, as one of my artist friends says, he cannot speak without creating. Um, that every, every time he moves, every time he does something, it is an act of creativity uh, that is meant to reveal himself. Okay? Um, and to help, to help us understand this, I want to look at what some people have called uh, the narrative of Christianity. If you can toss that next slide up there. Um, maybe you've seen this before. Um, I, I know that uh, sometimes schools or seminaries will, will use this language, um, but it's the idea of, of creation, fall, and redemption. Uh, that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Um, and it took about two chapters for people to um, send that beautiful world he made into chaos, right? Uh, they sinned against him, uh, and in doing so, they let sin and death enter the world, right? We had a terrible fall, uh, a terrible, terrible fall. But out of his grace and mercy, he sent his son, Jesus, to come um, and to take the death, to die the death that we deserved. Um, he rose on the third day. God had raised him up from the dead, right? And, and in that, there's the forgiveness of sins. There is a redemption, right? This is, this is what some people have called um, the big narrative of Christianity. Uh, it's beautiful. It's our story. Um, but what I want to suggest is that God as creator is not limited to only that first section. You can go ahead and flip that slide, Max. Um, and so I, I work with a lot of, a lot of visual artists, um, and I've gone to school my whole life for writing. And so I, I've encountered a lot of writers. And what I've discovered is that people who, are, uh, who have a hand in the arts in some way, um, in the secular world, really understand this part of the narrative. Uh, they understand that there was something once beautiful, innocent, uh, something that was of great value, that one way or another grew corrupted. If you read a lot of the literature for today, you'll notice that it lacks this element of redemption. Uh, it lacks this, uh, the, the healing that comes on the other side of this story. Um, but these people in the world who are making art, and I think even people who aren't, deeply understand creation and fall. Right? It's, it's so much of our stories. Um, and, and that's very true, especially for the artists that I've worked with who have, God has given them gifts of creativity. Um, uh, their brains are wired in very different ways that make them hard to live in society um, in a normal way. But, but God speaks through them in what they make in beauty. But I've equally heard it said um, that Christians only understand this part of the story. This is interesting uh, because you'd think that if this is our grand narrative of Christianity, we would understand all of it in its totality. Um, but I think through a lot of years of, of church history, what's really been emphasized is that we were, you know, these fallen, depraved individuals who sinned against God, but thankfully he sent his son Jesus to die for us, which is 100% true. Um, but I have a theory that the church has missed out on an understanding of God as creator. I think we understand that at the beginning, but I don't think we understand its centrality to all of who God is. Okay? Um, and there are uh, a couple reasons, I think, that Christians have missed out on this. You can go ahead and, and flip this slide. So uh, about 130 years ago um, in this country, we started moving into cities. Uh, the Industrial Revolution happened, and a lot of people began flooding into great cities in, in terms of looking for work. 
Uh, and there's this fascinating pattern in human history that every time we build a city, we seem to come at it with the hype of Babel. Uh, we seem to believe that we can come together to create something amazing that's never been created before, and it will solve the human condition. It will eradicate all the problems. It will heal disease. It will make people walk together in brotherly love. Right? Uh, and that's not true. It's never happened. It's never worked in history. But it continues to repeat itself uh, with every advance in, in the journey of history. Um, and so in the 1890s, when the Industrial Revolution was happening in this country, people abandoned the farm by and large, and they started moving into cities. Um, they believed that through these new machines, we could eradicate disease and, and heal the human condition. Uh, it was a wonderful optimism that was rooted in the wrong thing. Right? And how often has that burned us in our own lives? Um, and what happened was, uh, spoiler alert, the city did not solve people's problems. They found themselves working on assembly lines all day and all night, and they began to wonder if they were more than cogs in a machine. Um, and through that process, uh, they began to grow, not in, in brotherly love and healing, they began to grow uh, more anxious. Um, they began to have a malaise that colored everything that they did. Uh, they began to feel a, a deep sense of alienation and questioning what it meant to truly be human. And some of the first people to respond uh, to this cultural sense of alienation were the visual artists. Uh, people like Picasso, people like Salvador Dali. Um, and they did, their response to this was to create what you see on the right, uh, something we call modernist art. Um, and it's a large deviation from the history of Western art. Uh, the painting on the left is by Rembrandt in the 1600s. It's called The Raising of Christ. I love it because Rembrandt has painted himself as, uh, at the foot of the cross there, hoisting Jesus. And I think there's something incredibly symbolic about it. Uh, but Western art, for a very long time, because of the influence of the church, uh, it had certain canonical things that you did not break. Right? One of those was that you depicted the human body in realistic ways that you tried to make it look uh, as realistic or as romanticized as possible. You really tried to show the humanity. Uh, another characteristic of this art was that you tried to depict nature. Um, and a third one that really isn't biblical, um, but was that you did these things in, in a way that looked three-dimensional. And so when the modernist artists came onto the scene, they started breaking every single one of these traditions. They stopped painting Bible stories, uh, they stopped painting Christ, and instead they started painting the human being, but not in three dimensions. They painted it largely in a, in a two-dimensional field of view, um, and they fragmented everything. They fragmented the body. They fragmented nature. Um, and in this family was a deep existential cry for, can someone tell me what this life means? Can someone give me hope for the human condition that I am now facing. I, I genuinely believe we live in a similar time where people are asking that same question and are looking for the hope of the gospel. But what happened was uh, that this modern art was revealed for the first time in 1913 in something called the Armory Show in New York. A lot of these artists were operating out of Europe and they brought this stuff over uh, in an art show that happened in 1913. Uh, and for the first time, people saw Picasso, they saw the shop, they saw Salvador Dali, they saw all these people we now consider great artists, and they freaked out. They said, this is not art. This is gross. Um, this is a fragmentation of the human body, right? And the people who rejected it most were the Christians. The people who rejected it most were the Christians, why? Because it did not abide by the traditional rules, which were never set in place by God, 
right? It did not apply by the traditional church rules of how art should be done, right? I don't think the Christians discerned the existential cry for meaning that these artists were putting forth. I think they would have met them with the gospel. I think we have the opportunity today to meet creative people with the gospel in this way. But we have to see that there is a cry out there. Okay, so what happened uh, was after this show, um, the show, the Christians historically, this is all coming from a lot of books, I can give you a reading list on this if you want, but um, the Christians began radicalizing their disciples against the artists, right? Uh, from the pulpit, preachers said, do not go into the arts, it's demonic, it's evil, it will corrupt you, look what they're doing, they're fragmenting the body that God has made, they're fragmenting the nature God has made. These are direct assaults on nature and the body, um, so this is a direct assault on God. You need to reject this form of art. Um, And the reality is God manifests in whatever medium of the day comes, ladies and gentlemen. To limit him to a certain style or way of art is to limit him as creator, right? And this is what people did for a very long time. So we had about 70 years uh, where the Christians said, don't go into the arts, it's demonic, it's evil. Meanwhile, the artists said, don't go anywhere near Christianity, right? Christianity will buzzkill your creativity, All they are is they have these rules uh, and they have this understanding that is not informed by creativity. And sadly, uh, they were right because as the Christians stepped out of the arts, right, there's two truths that are central here. One is that we demonize what we don't take the time to understand in anything in life. We demonize what we don't take the time to understand, right? And this is what Christians of the day did. But But the second truth is that the enemy invades whatever sphere the Christian avoids, And so when there was a vacuum in the arts, because of that, people started to move into that space, not for the Lord, for the wrong kingdom. And it just made that rift grow larger and larger and larger. Um, And because of this, like we're starting to come back. I think people in the the age of the smartphone and the age of visual branding in the church have started to understand how important the visual arts are um, to God, how important uh, God as creator is to a generation who stopped listening to the church but is listening to Instagram. I think the church is starting to wake up to that, but we're, we're a long way behind. Um, and my fear is that in that gap, we have missed revelation of who God is as a creator because we haven't been encouraging people to make things. We've been encouraging them to stay out of the arts. And so I have this fear that we have missed who God is as creator. And because I think we've missed part of who God is as creator, I think we've missed how central that is um, to the entire gospel. Right? When Jesus redeemed the world, right, if we go back to creation, fall, and redemption, that act of redemption was a creative act. God cursed the world, and he said, uh, Adam and Eve, because of what you've done, this sin, let the earth be cursed because of you. Let thorns and briars come up out of the earth. Well, what did Jesus do? He took a crown of thorns on his head. So do you understand this? This is an act of deep creativity. He's saying, I'm not just going to redeem the people who were under sin. I'm going to redeem the whole earth that has been cursed. That's how big he is. But, but to understand that is, is to uh, see him in, in the light as creative redeemer. God's redemption is a creative act. Um, you can flip that next slide. That same word, bara, the Hebrew word used, when I did a word search on it, I was amazed to find that it was in Psalm 51. This is like the, uh, the psalm that David gives um, after what is kind of equivalent to a political scandal of today, right? Uh, here's a man who has political influence, who's had another man killed uh, so he can have an affair with his wife, 
um, and marry her, right? Uh, so it, it's, it's the equivalent of a political scandal of today. Um, and David gets called out by a prophet that God sends. Um, and he's cut to the heart, and he chooses to repent because God offers us that redemption. But it's fascinating to me that he uses the same word. Right? There's other words in Hebrew for make. There's like asa. Uh, there's bana. We'll talk about that one. Um, but David uses the word bara. He uses the word that God created the heavens and the earth. And he says, create in me a new heart. He knew that God couldn't just redeem him, that he had to literally recreate the parts of his heart that were broken to make something beauty, beautiful out of that brokenness. Um, and that's what God does. God is a creative redeemer, right? Uh, him as creator is central to every point in the, in the story of the grand narrative of Christianity. And so him as a creator informs how he is as a redeemer. Um, one of the best books I've read, you can go ahead and flip that next slide, in the last year is a book called Art and Faith by uh, an artist named Makoto Fujimura. He loves Jesus. Um, and in the book, Makoto Fujimura presents something called kintsugi as a metaphor for the gospel. If you're unfamiliar with kintsugi, it's the Japanese art of taking broken pottery, uh, broken ceramics, and using kind of a gold and glue lacquer to piece those things back together, um, to reshape the form. Uh, and I think so much, uh, you can go back, uh, so much of the time our temptation is to look at the broken pieces and throw them out. Uh, to say they're not useful, they're not good anymore. Um, but that's not God's heart, right? God's heart is to take those broken pieces and to do this with them, right? Uh, it's to make something absolutely beautiful. And here's the, the metaphor of kintsugi, is that no two ceramics, no two pieces of pottery were broken in the same way. And so they can never look identical, right? Um, but what they can continue to do is look beautiful, uh, because some, some artist saw in those broken pieces the ability for things to fit back together. Um, and the places of the brokenness in Kintsugi become the places of the beauty. This is the gospel, fam. We have a creative God who sees the different ways we've been broken. We have all been broken by sin done against us, and we have been broken by the sin our hands and minds have committed. Right? We are like those pieces on the floor scattered, but our creative God does not leave us there. He says, I'm going to fix that. I'm going to put that back together and in a way that's more beautiful than the original. That makes no sense to me. My Western Industrial Revolution mind wants to throw those pieces out and start over. But that's not God, right? That's not him as redeemer and that's not him as creator. He is creative in how he redeems each one of us. He makes beauty from brokenness. And perhaps this is why Revelation says we overcome uh, with the word of our testimony. Uh, Fujimura actually goes one step further in this book. He talks about that same grand narrative of Christianity, creation, fall, redemption, that I've talked about. Um, but he says that's not enough. All of what God is doing as a redeemer is funneling toward his promise that he's making a new heavens and a new earth. That he is not only a creator, but he's a redeemer are not only a creator and a redeemer, but that redemption is moving into a new creation. Uh, and what I was fascinated to find in my word search this week was that that word bara appears again in this context. In Isaiah, uh, God says, I will create a new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered or come to mind. 
Be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. And so this is what I want to suggest, fam, is that at every stage, except our own fall in the story, in this four-part symphony, God is functioning as a creator, not only in the creation, but in how he redeems us and in how all that is funneling to a new creation. Um, this is an echo of what happens in Revelation 21, uh, in, the, in the second to last chapter of the Bible, um, where God says, where Jesus appears, uh, and he is creating a new heavens and a new earth, and he says, behold, I am making all things new. You'll notice that he says that in the present tense. He doesn't say it in the past tense. He doesn't even say it in the future tense, right? I will make all things new. He says, behold, I'm making all things new in the present tense. Um, and that's what it means for God to be a creator. It's for him, it's for his creativity to inform every part of the story. Uh, and so what's our response to this, fam? Well, I'm going to teach you another Hebrew word today. Uh, this is barah, or banah, sorry. See if you can say it, banah. Sounds like bananas, but not quite. Um, Banah is, is the Hebrew word for to build or to fashion. Uh, and it appears a lot throughout the Bible. Um, it's only used of God one time when he fashions uh, Eve from Adam's rib. But every other time, it's the verb that is attributed to people. Um, when, whenever we see this verb in Scripture, like nine out of ten times, it's people building a house, people building an altar to the Lord or to other gods, um, and it's a people building a city. Right? And so we're made in the image of a creative God. We're not creators in the sense that we can speak nothing out of thin air, or we can speak something out of thin air. But God did make us to make. Um, he made some people artists, writers, poets, dancers, all that stuff. Um, but his creativity is not limited to that. Every single one of us builds a house. Right? We build a household in how we interact with our family. We build an altar in what we make to the Lord. Um, and we work toward a city, whether it's the new Jerusalem or the kingdom of the self. Um, and so the question that I want to ask is, what are we making toward? Um, go ahead and flip that next slide. Um, so I want to put the verbs side by side, right? We have God's verb, bara, and our verb, uh, bana. And um, I'm, I'm kind of like a big nerd. I'll just let that out of the bag right now. I'm sure you figured that out by now. But I love studying Hebrew, and I love studying this stuff in, in the old language. Um, and what I found in my studies of Hebrew is that Hebrew, uh, the biblical Hebrew evolved from a language called Paleo-Hebrew, which evolved from something called Proto-Kainitic or Proto-Sinitic script. That original script was actually hieroglyphics. It was pictures that became the letters over time. Um, and those pictures actually have uh, symbology to each one of them. Um, to the point where an author named Frank Seekins wrote a book called Hebrew Word Pictures, and he explores um, how sometimes the deeper meaning of a Hebrew word can be discerned by looking at hieroglyphically what do the letters say when you put them together. And I found something really curious when I did this for these two verbs this week. Um, that, that letter, Hebrews read right to left, by the way, so these are the last two letters, uh, or these are the last letters in both verbs. The letter on the left is an aleph. Um, go ahead and flip that slide. And it, it symbolized an ox. It, it came from a hieroglyphic of an ox originally. Um, and it meant strength, right? It symbolized some form of, of strength. Uh, whereas the he uh, came from a window. It was the window of a house in the hieroglyphic. And so because of that, it's said to symbol, uh, give symbol to revelation or the ability to see something. Okay? So if we go back to, uh, if you go to the next slide, right, we see that bara, God's verb, reveals the strength of something 
whereas uh, our verb, um, uh, or God's verb shows the strength of something, and our verb is to reveal something. Well, interestingly enough, if we take the two word, if, if we take the two-letter word that comes before each one of those letters, both of those words mean son. Bar is the Aramaic word for son. Um, it's not Hebrew technically, but it's used all throughout the Masoretic text in like Psalm 2. It says, kiss the son. It uses the word bar. Jesus uses it colloquially. He says, blessed are you, Simon bar Jonah, right? He means Simon, son of Jonah, okay? So that word means, it means son, and bane is the other word for son in Hebrew. It's, it's the more uh, formal Hebrew verb. And so curiously, when we put this together, we find that God's verb, uh, benah, it's to show the strength of the Son. What he has made reveals the Son's strength. And isn't this crazy? Because that's the verse we started with. Romans 1.20 says, creation reveals his eternal power. So wildly, even on the linguistic level, God is, is showing that his character is consistent. Right? And the fact that this verb is not limited to him making the world, but it's in him redeeming the world. It's in him redeeming all of our stories. It's in him uh, in the new creation. All throughout, we see God as creator, as a source of his strength and power. Benah is our verb, right? Uh, the window reveals, and so it reveals the sun. And what I want to suggest this morning, fam, um, is that what we make on this earth has the potential to reveal our sonship. And I believe that it reveals whom we truly serve. We all have the opportunity to build a household, to make an altar to the Lord, um, and to build a city, whether it's his kingdom of heaven here on earth, or whether it's the kingdom of the self. And I truly believe that all of our work is going to reveal whose son we are. Um, go ahead and flip that slide. This, this echoes something Paul says in 1 Corinthians. He's not talking about salvation here, right? We're saved by faith. But he is talking about how what we build uh, on this earth, what we make on this earth, right? Whether it's a family, a piece of poetry, whether it's a ministry, whether it's a business, whatever that thing is will be tested by fire in the day that the Lord comes back. Uh, and the fire will burn away what wasn't of God. Fire is never a destroying agent in the New Testament as much as it's a revealing agent in the New Testament. Okay? And so what each person has built um, will pass through fire. And it, I believe that it will reveal what was built from the foundation of us as sons and daughters of God. I believe it will truly reveal the Son as the Hebrew uh, symbology and the word suggests. Um, and that's my question, fam. That's my challenge to you this day. What are you building? What are you making? You don't have to be a writer. You don't have to be an artist. But in how you're building your house and how you're building whatever it is you offer to the Lord on an altar, um, how you're building his kingdom or the city, are we making generatively and creatively um, from that foundation of God as creator? Are we making out of that place? Uh, and I truly believe that in a generation who has long ago stopped listening to the church, stopped coming to church buildings, and is now listening to the artists, I believe that what we make has the potential to pave the way for people to hear the gospel. I truly believe that with all my heart. You can go ahead and flip that next slide. Makoto Fujimura, uh, he's going to say it like this. We may not need to provide the world with proof of God's existence or to coerce others to see the reality of God as we experience life if we're making generatively. Perhaps instead, we need to create and make through the fissures of our lives in an authentic way. Such understanding can illuminate the kintsugi path toward the new creation. He's not saying don't preach the gospel. 
um, what he's saying is this. Uh, you can flip that last slide here. Is that if we are making from this place of understanding God as creator, understanding God as redeemer, and understanding that God is uh, creating toward a new heavens and a new earth that we will be part of, um, then we can, show, we can show the world who he is as a creator, and maybe they'll understand who he is as a Lord and Savior. So what are you making, fam? Uh, and what foundation are you making from? Um, let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for who you are. Thank you for being a creator. Thank you for being a redeemer. Thank you, God, that you are moving toward a new creation. Thank you that you did not leave us as broken pieces on a floor, God, but you took each one of our lives, Jesus, you pieced it back together, and you made the points of brokenness the points of beauty. God, I pray for your revelation uh, over this church, over, over this body of people, over the city of Holland, God, over this whole generation and crazy time. Lord, in a time where we're seeing so many things fragment and be destroyed, Jesus, would you be understood as creator? Would you birth gifts of creativity in the body? Would you stir your body to make generatively in ways such that the world can understand you as creator and savior? We thank you, Lord, for who you are, and we bless your name. Amen.